Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, November the 4th. I'm Tom Tilley. And as you hear the US election analysis coming in today, these are two words you're going to hear a lot of, Annika. Yes, that's the left and the right. And we're talking about politics, not what hand you write with. The radical left. Right wing. The left wing, not from the right. The militant left. They're used in politics all the time, so we're going to explain what they actually mean. Yes, left and right and how they're changing in just a moment. First, let's hit the big news of the day. Four more years of the Don or Biden 2020. The polling booths are open and Americans are making that decision. Yeah, today President Donald Trump is at his campaign headquarters in Virginia where he'll be throwing a party tonight. He's told Fox he expects an even better result than 2016. I think you can agree. It's it's been incredible. The crowds have been incredible. And, you know, nobody's ever had it before. And I think that translates into a lot of votes. Joe Biden, meanwhile, started the day with a visit to his childhood home in Pennsylvania, which just happens to be one of the most important swing states in the election. Yeah, so Joe Biden is leading in the national polls. However, the odds have shortened overnight with Trump closing in in some key battleground states and plenty of voters are switching sides. I'm voting for Trump and and the reason I'm voting for him is uh, I I like everything he's done in this country. Finally, somebody who stands up for America, you know. Yeah, I'm a Democrat, but I'm voting Republican. Plenty of voting for Biden too. I'm a lifelong Republican. I'm voting for Joe Biden because I believe that um, our constitution is at risk right now. Um, separation of powers are at risk. And I'm, we've had four years of an experiment which has gone dramatically wrong and it can't continue this way or else America will not survive as we know it. So close to 100 million people have already cast their votes in early polling and mail-in ballots. And America's expecting its biggest voter turnout in over 100 years. Yeah, if you compare this to 2016, about 60% of eligible voters voted. That's 138 million people. They reckon that's going to hit 150 million people this year, which is huge, but also a big number, Tom, that aren't voting. Yeah, it's a completely different system. Um, We've talked about this a few times, but the reason I guess some of the rhetoric is so extreme is that it's about getting people out to vote today rather than necessarily winning them over on sensible policies. And we should get some idea which way the results are going, if they're not too tight, by early afternoon today, especially in those states where it's a clear decision. And the 160th Melbourne Cup has been run and won by Irish horse Twilight Payment, upsetting pre-race favourites Tiger Moth and Prince of Arun. Tiger Moth wearing him down with the chosen one. It's Twilight Payment. Tiger Moth still trying to get there. Twilight Payment, what a ride, what a win in a cup we'll never forget. Incredible ride there. Winning jockey Jai McNeil told 10 he'd dreamt of this moment for years. Since day one. Yeah. Yeah, since before I could ride and... uh, It was a very um, surreal feeling crossing that line. Yeah, it's the second cup for trainer Joseph O'Brien, who was watching from Ireland. We would love to have been there, but, uh, you know, incredibly special. Joy gave the horse an incredible ride. Credit has to go to Lloyd and Nick Williams, uh, um, and they really felt this horse was at a big chance in the race this year. But the celebrations were marred by the death of one of the favourites, Anthony Van Dyke, who was euthanised after breaking down 500 metres from the finishing post. Yeah, that was the seventh death of a horse racing in the Melbourne Cup since 2013. So nearly an average of one a year in recent times. And the jockey riding second place Tiger Moth was fined $50,000 for whipping the horse too many times. He was also suspended for 13 meetings. 
and a convicted Islamic State sympathiser who'd completed a de-radicalisation program in jail has carried out a deadly terror attack in Austria. The 20-year-old was shot dead by police in Vienna after killing four people and wounding 22 others with an assault rifle. Yeah, he was jailed last year for trying to go to Syria to join Islamic State fighters. However, the government says he managed to fool those in charge of a de-radicalisation program into granting him an early release. Good news if you've got a mortgage. As expected, the Reserve Bank has cut the official rate to 0.1%, the lowest in Australia's history. Yeah, and RBA Governor Philip Lowe doesn't expect rates to go up for at least three years now. The board expects that this new lower level of interest rates will be in place for an extended period. The board will not increase the cash rate until actual inflation is sustainably within the target range. All eyes are now on the big banks to see whether they pass on the full 15 percentage points. So far, none have announced any changes. It's good for people that are about to buy a home, but not those that are saving for it, though, Tom. Yeah, that's right. It it, it feels like whenever there's a a moment where it looks like the housing market might soften, like in the the sort of COVID um, recession, the Reserve Bank does everything they can to drop rates and, and make housing affordable for those people who already have mortgages. So not necessarily great news for people who are nowhere near buying their first home and feel it's out of reach. And when it comes to the economy here, Annika, I think it's it's not so much about you know mortgages getting a little bit cheaper. The real takeouts for me yesterday were that interest rates wouldn't be going up from these record lows for at least three years. That's, that's pretty huge. And also... Um, announcing those new government bonds that will put an extra $200 billion of extra money into the economy. And the Reserve Bank's action finally got a pat on the back from Paul Keating, former Prime Minister, who's been pretty critical of late of their position during the recession. Yeah, quite a number of um, leading economists said, you know, this shows the Reserve Bank is pulling out all stops to keep the economy strong, which demonstrates to me, Annika, there's still a lot of concern about the economy bouncing back from COVID. All right, in a moment, as the left and the right go to the polling booths in the US, we explain what those terms actually mean, left and right. Annika, you probably know this old saying that if you're not left-leaning when you're young, you don't have a heart, and if you're not right-leaning when you're old, you don't have a brain. Yeah, it's a pretty popular phrase around political circles, and one that really gets people fired up too, I think, but... I think it has merit. What do you reckon, Tom? Yeah, I I think so. Um, You basically hear left and right thrown around in almost any political argument, but we often really don't define what they mean properly and and people often aren't comfortable with that label being put on them, are they? No, and as you say, you can change throughout life too. These aren't set and forget. You know, you don't start off in one team and end there at the end of your life. Although we are increasingly tribal and it's hard to find a lot of people who consider themselves centralists anymore. Yeah, so left and right, we're actually going to define what they mean. You're going to hear a lot about them in the context of the US election and they're always thrown around here in Australia as well. So what is left, what is right and how have they changed? We've got Dr. Zare Gazarian with us. He's a lecturer in politics and international relations at Monash Uni. Zare, thanks for joining us. What do these terms mean? Where did they come from? And how do we end up with this binary way of defining politics? <laughs> uh, the, the left and right term comes from a period in the French Revolution. So in the late 1700s, as there was massive social and economic upheaval happening in France, 
um, the National Assembly, virtually the Parliament, met to decide the power of the king, whether the power would be maintained or whether the king would have reduced powers. And as part of those debates, during those debates, those who wanted to support the status quo and give the power um, to the king went to the right of the president. And those who were um, putting up different ideas and progressive ideas and argued for the king to have less power moved to the left to the president. And from there, we get this really binary way of looking at politics, which is conservatives and those who support the status quo being lumped in to the right, and those with progressive ideas, especially on social and economic policy, being lumped together on the left. So that's essentially where the left-right title comes from. All right, let's dig deeper into the left. Tell us more about it. What what has it traditionally meant to be left-leaning? So with the left, we usually associate um, issues concerning progressive ideas. So um, if we think about contemporary uh, politics and the contemporary debate, the left is usually seen to be the champion of progressive ideas such as same-sex marriage, being in favour of same-sex marriage, um, such as being in favour of, for example, um, euthanasia or assisted dying. Um, this idea of moving away from coal-powered electricity or finding new alternative sources of energy. So things that are usually linked in with progressive ideas are seen to be left ideas. Although we've got to be a bit careful, of course, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, that sometimes um, you can have a bit of bleeding uh, between left and right, especially in Mm. modern politics. So what does progressive actually mean? Essentially, progressive in politics is trying to change the status quo. So those that seek to change the the rules, the laws, norms tend to be seen to be progressive, which is linked in with that idea of being left of centre. So what does that mean if you're on the right? If I'm a right-wing person or I'm right-leaning, what characteristics do I usually have? Yeah, that's a great a question, Annika, because of course it's essentially the opposite of, of being on the left. If you're on the right, you view the world and, and politics as it is at the moment as being fine, as wanting to maintain that status quo. And I think that's the real key to try and keep the status quo is literally being conservative. So it it carries through into the politics and the description of politics as well, that being conservative is about trying to keep things as they are. And often when we think about conservatism in politics, um, that is linked to things such as, again, if we think about same-sex marriage, those who were conservative were not in favour of same-sex marriage as it possibly, as it was was going to, change the status quo. Again, thinking about the power of institutions, those who are conservative feel that the institutions that have power at the moment are fine and they don't require rejigging. So you get this pattern where on the left, it's about trying to change things as they are. If you're on the right, um, you are wanting to keep things or see things kept as they are. That doesn't always work, though. For instance, there were people within the Labor Party who weren't in favour of same-sex marriage and equally there are Liberals in Australia who want to get rid of the monarchy. So why do we still use these terms as relevant today? 
I think we use these terms because they're a great shorthand way of referring to broad policy families um, being on the left or the right. It's this really shorthand way of doing it. But your point is entirely accurate, Annika, because we see, especially in modern parties, where there is this sense of um, the parties cherry-picking, essentially, elements of policies from the left and the right. And this is particularly true for the major parties. So the left-right binary coding isn't really effective in describing modern politics. But when we look at the major parties today, we can see that they are centre-left and centre-right, meaning basically that they um, try and um, represent a number of policies that are traditionally seen to be on the left, for example, if they're a centre-left party, but also incorporate policy ideas that have the origins or are more closely linked to um, issues from the right. Just for example, um, if we think about the Labor Party um, and we think about um, its social policy, so it's certainly very much in terms of advancing or reforming social welfare policy, but at the same time, it is a party that is open to reducing taxation or keeping, certainly, the status quo in terms of the institutional framework of the state. So it's this sort of idea that these major parties borrow bits and pieces across the political spectrum. Now, Australia, of course, isn't the only country that has this left-right political system. In fact, a lot do. So is there something intrinsic in us that means we sort of line up in these two teams? And is there examples where this isn't the case? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. I think there's a lot of work that's been done to try and identify the political and psychological features of those who align with the left or right and this issue of authority and authoritarianism um, to try and understand why it is that people are attracted to these particular values and particular beliefs. I think in modern democracies, though, what we're seeing is a, a decreasing space Um, for this binary coding. What we're seeing is is a lot of people sitting in the middle of the political spectrum where they are not really aligned to any of the values um, or these ideas that are coming from the left or right, but are happy to be pragmatic and, and to decide who to vote for based on the issues that are presented to them or um, the policies that are promised to them at an election. And if we look around the world, what we tend to see is a rise or a maintenance in the number of parties that are emerging from the further left or further right of the spectrum. In Australia, if we think about Uh, Parties that are more further left to the Labor Party is is often something that the Greens are seen to be um, holding, that area further to the left. Further to the right of of the coalition, it's the One Nation Party that is often seen to be um, holding that that area. And, And these parties emerge. The way you describe right-wing, it sounds kind of unappealing, just fighting for the status quo, I imagine, especially for for young people who want to see see the world changed. I'm interested to know what you think about these labels in terms of people's life stages and their their ages. Age doesn't really have that much of an impact um, based on on the um, limited research that we've done. There's certainly ground to look at here, um, but it's one of those interesting things that we found. We were certainly expecting that when we asked first-time voters how they'd be voting who um, and how they decided to vote, 
that would be based on this idea of progressive ideas. But generally, they fell um, into line with the older population and their parents' voting patterns. Um, in Australia, yep. we've got Labor on the centre-left and the Liberals on the centre-right. And there's always accusations that they're both being taken over by the extremes of their party. Is there any evidence of that or do we still have a pretty much centre system? I think the parties, the major parties, if they are really concerned about winning elections, will be attuned and they'll be focused on attracting those swinging voters, voters who haven't decided whether they are sitting on the left or the right of the policy spectrum. So I think from time to time, there will be voices who will be a bit more prominent in the parties. For example, in the Liberal Party, the social conservatives um, will often pipe up and will be really prominent and they'll be um, seen to be leading the party to the right. For example, on social policy. Um, we remember the sorts of um, leaders in this space when we think about the um, same-sex marriage debate. Those who are opposing it, of course, were um, from the right. Then we've got, if we think about the, the Labor Party, accusations that it moves to the left or is uh, sometimes hijacked by those um, from the left. Again, it indicates to us that the party is um, accommodating a broad range of views, and especially on things such as environmental policy or energy policy, the Labor Party has those members to the left, from the left, um, as a centre-left party, as we'd expect it to, who start to lead the charge in terms of making progressive reforms. And of course, the further away people go from that centre to the fringes, they almost start to cross over. This isn't a line. It almost is a circle sometimes. Can you explain to us, I guess, what happens when we go to the absolute extremes of the left and right? Sure, sure. So the further left and right you go, you're right, Annika, they, they get closer. So think about the um, left and right spectrum as basically like a piece of paper or, or a ribbon that you can basically join the two ends with. Now, there's still going to be differences when the two ends meet. The left and, and the right will still have some differences, but there are some key similarities as well. And that is, of course, the role and the power of government. If we think about the left and we think about this idea of the state, the government, owning the means of production, owning, essentially abolishing the private sector, we're giving power to the government. If we think about the right and we go to the extreme right where we think about fascism or nationalism, again, it is about locating power centrally in government. Yeah, it gets so complicated when you move across those spectrums and, and look at the similarities, um, of which there are plenty amongst all these bizarre quirks of human behaviour. Uh, Zare, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. All right, that was Dr. Zare Gazarian from Monash Uni. Interesting one, Annika, those definitions are so fraught and constantly changing. I feel like this, and it, it's good because we often put people in these two categories, but sitting and listening to that, I don't know how many people go, yeah, that defines everything about my politics. Life isn't that easy. Yeah, I mean, after hearing that, I would say that the right is more about empowering the individual to improve their their standing in the world. And then the left is looking at more systematic, uh, I guess, government-controlled measures to make sure the vulnerable in society aren't left behind. What do you think of that definition? Did we get there? I don't think it's a bad definition. I think it, it gets to the point of it. But, of course, with these things, as we discuss, Azari, you can always find exceptions. So... Mm. 
It's also interesting in Australia because we have that system of compulsory voting and we actually have centre-left and centre-right parties. It's not that gaping divide we see in other countries. So the interesting thing I find about left and right is often used as a critical word to both sides. You see the right bagging out lefties and you see the left using right as a real criticism of someone's political view. You don't see a lot of people proudly own up to being on both sides. Yeah, it's, they're basically oversimplifying the views of their opponent, aren't they, when they do that? Yeah, I think it's a really powerful way to sort of denigrate and break down a really complex issue into something that's not that simple. All right, that's it for today's podcast. Tomorrow we're going to take you deep into the analysis on the US presidential election. Look forward to that. Have a good day. A Podcast One production.